This is the MG Car Club Podcast. On this episode, we meet the great-grandson of MG founder, Cecil Kimber. The MG Car Club Podcast. Hello, Wayne Scott here with the MG Car Club Podcast. Hope you're keeping well and hope you're enjoying the summer sunshine with your MG wherever you are in the world. It's certainly been an amazing year of shows and events and just great stuff happening for the centenary of MG. Of course, massive event back in June at Silverstone for MG and Triumph 100. Great to join with the Triumph Clubs there. And of course, the full reports have been in Safety Fast magazine and online at mgcc.co.uk. On this episode, I'm going to be catching up with someone who I actually met for the first time at MG and Triumph 100 at Silverstone. He came into the arena halfway through something I was talking about at the time and was there to present the Young Members Branch Award of the Year. It was a great moment because I was introduced to him and then realised who he was. It was Joe McGavin, great-grandson of Cecil Kimber. And it's been a couple of weeks in the making, but finally we did get him on the podcast. And I think it's safe to say that this is not a biographical analysis of his great-grandfather. That you can get online, actually, from the MG Car Club shop with our book that's available to buy there. It's called Kim, which is the name that Cecil Kimber's friends used to use for him. Kim, a biography of MG founder Cecil Kimber. You can find it online at shop.mgcc.co.uk. Just use the books menu, or you can search for it by title. That gives you a really great insight into the biography of Cecil Kimber. But when I was talking to Joe McGavin, I had a chat to him about his family background, how proud he felt of it as he was growing up, and also a little bit about the legacy that Cecil Kimber and the brand MG has left behind and what effect that's had on his life and his family. Settle back, it's a nice chat this. Joe McGavin, great-grandson of Cecil Kimber, is next. The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club, the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centres and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go.uk. Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. Well, on the MG Car Club podcast for this episode, we're going back in time and talking about the man who originally split away from Morris Garages to form MG in the 1920s, started building those very special Rayworth-bodied Morris Cowleys 100 years ago this year in 1923. Some of his descendants are still around, and we've managed to find one. He was with us at Silverstone for MG Triumph 100, and he's now on the podcast with us as well. Joe McGavin, welcome. Hello. Hi. So, Joe, talk us through the family tree here. How are you connected through family to the original man himself, Cecil Kimber? My grandmother was Jean Kimber Cook, um, and obviously her son, her eldest son, Kim, Old James Kimber um, is my dad, and obviously uh, Jean is Cecil's daughter. So he's my great grandfather through my grandmother and father. 
Um, as you were growing up, what did you know about your great-grandfather? Was the story told through your family? Was there an awareness of it throughout your life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew about it from a young age. Um, from Granny Jean, as I called her, we went to Silverstone. I knew about it and was aware of it and had memorabilia. I had a book and I had uh, items of clothing and would talk to talk to my granny about it and um yeah because i was probably the one of her of her grandchildren that took a took most of an interest um i was interested in design um and engineering and i was interested in cars um and i was very interested in the fact that you know my great-grandfather was this guy cecil kimber um so obviously granny jean who did a lot of work with the car club and, and traveled around to be a bit of an ambassador. I think from a young age when I would be, show interest, she really latched onto that and she, you know, she really enjoyed the fact that, that, you know, she was able to sort of pass that interest on to, to someone else in the family. Mm. Um, because my, my dad and his brother Pete, neither of them had really shown a great, you know, desire to be really involved or or anything so um i think from from my grand's perspective it was very much a she saw me as as the, the person to be able to pass the baton to i think a little bit mm. yeah they must have a tremendous sense of pride that you know even on today's roads you can look around and you can see these cars with mg badges on and know that your family connection started all of that do you feel that kind of pride every day when you see a car come past you on the street yep exactly yes i do yeah yeah um and it's kind of been reignited because i've got two daughters um who are 10 and 12 and they've now picked up on it and they spot them now um so you know that's really cool because they're the ones who point them out and they'll go he had a fantastic start didn't he really um in engineering started in motorcycles really uh that was his first mm. interest and then worked for the family firm as it was at the time and then was assistant yep. to chief designer uh, at sheffield simplex um, before moving on to ac cars eg wrigley and of course they were all supplies into the morris brand where eventually he got his job at morris motors um when it was bought by W.R. Morris in 1923. But following those sorts of that sort of family journey through design and engineering, mm -hmm. do you think there's something in the DNA then, in the genes that predisposes the Kimbers and their <laughs> descendants to this? I mean, that's a possibility. That's, I kind of grew up thinking that I was the one who caught it, you know, the, the, the family genes or whatever it is, um, because I had that interest in, in design and engineering. I think my my grand granny Jean used to say that I was very similar in some ways that because I had that kind of problem solving uh, mentality because I was never really an engineer I was never really a designer I was never really kind of into management or business and I think from what I am, I know of Cecil Kimber is, is that he was quite similar he wasn't really one thing or another specifically he just did a a, a lot of it you know reasonably well he was able to sort of marry a lot of it together and, and um was able to kind of see the bigger picture i suppose is is, is the way i've seen it mm -hmm. um 
And yeah, I've, I've taken a great interest in the fact that you know the family business was printing a printing press, and they were quite you know forward forward looking with uh, the way it was. You know, they brought in a steam printing press, I believe. Um, was it Hen- Henry Kimber, I believe? Um, and you know, Cecil Kimber had obviously gained that from his from his roots and his family and his dad. Um, but he, you know, he obviously didn't have any interest in that at all, and um, just wanted to be involved in fast, things that went fast and were dangerous. <laughs> yeah. And I can yeah. imagine being in the motor industry at that period in history, the early 1900s, was a little bit like being part of a tech startup today. It was modern technology, it was exciting, there was money yeah. to be made, and it was for the upwardly mobile, if you like. You know, And he'd come from that part of you know the northwest stockport there sheffield that mm. at the time would have been quite smoky industrial places eventually mm. finding himself making very classy cars in leafy abingdon in oxfordshire it's, it is quite a journey yeah. but you know it, it was kind of tech i guess at the time wasn't it yeah i think so yeah yeah um i mean i, I actually know very little about cars i can't talk about supercharging and um the kind of things that he did with those cars to make them that popular um i quite you know quite when i come to events people quite often spend a lot of time talking to me about their cars and um i you know embarrassingly don't have enough knowledge to to really have a conversation but you're right it's when i've read certain books about about what was going on back then i'm fascinated by the kind of ingenuity and the the forward-looking um, designers and the engineers and the stuff they were coming out with and the stuff they were coming up with was, you know, really was groundbreaking. And, and I suppose for myself, I would, I would love to have lived in that era because I'm a bit bewildered by the modern technology. Um, and, and, you know, I'm a bit more mechanical, mechanically minded myself. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 um, it's fascinating. I love reading the books about it. What do you know about, his sort of motivation behind founding MG from what you know of his character through uh, through Granny Jean and others that you've heard was the motivation do you think because he was kind of a petrol head and wanted to go faster and was into motorsport etc or was it that it was the business brain that said if I make these cars faster and put special bodies on them I'll make more money do you have an insight into that? Do you have any guesses as to what the motivation might have been? Um, I don't really know, I'll be honest. Um, I've always... There's a story that, that may or may not be true, so you could probably tell me more about this, but um, his wife was a seamstress, and, um, you know, my great-grandmother, she was a seamstress, and she had sort of the ability to, to, to draw curves um, and sort of understood because she understood dresses and cutting patterns she was able to to um, draw these curvy bodies and this I've kind of grown up thinking that they sort of somehow together had hatched this idea of, of new body shapes of to, to put onto the Morris chassis um, and that that might be fanciful thinking. I don't know, but I like the story anyway. I like the idea of it. Yeah, yeah. But I, t- I definitely, I definitely think that he. I mean, he obviously made money, and he liked to make money. He needed money, but he wasn't a money person. He was very much a. 
who did it for the love of speed and the love of sort of giving people joy, the pleasure of um, an affordable race sports car, basically. Um, that's how I've always imagined it, uh, but obviously I don't really know. Granny, Granny never really told me that much about him. Um, I've, I've, I've actually learned more about reading the books, you know, um, the books that have come out by various writers. Um, yeah. And it's amazing, isn't it, to think that, um, you know, MG had their real sports car heyday for a little glimpse of time there in the 1930s when you know especially the the p-type midgets were were racing and they were in the trials in the mid 1930s all those fantastic yeah. k3s at brooklands we'd seen all of those days but actually when you look at really when mg became a household name in effect during the 60s really and post mga mgb um, mm -hmm. Cecil Kimber would have had no idea about how that company would have turned out because, of course, there was that tragic uh, railway yeah. crash at King's Cross in 1945. They'd just come out of the Second World War. In fact, actually, the end mm -hmm. of war hadn't yet been declared. Um, yeah. And so you're still in the end of wartime there. He had no idea what was still to come for MG, and I always find that a sort of fascinating thought to grapple with, really. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's so ironic, really, that, that he ended up dying in a train accident, you know, not of his own. He wasn't pressing the accelerator himself. Mm -hmm. you know, it's sad and um, a bit of an irony. Um, it, yeah, it's, I mean, I, from what I understand and how he left the, you know, left the company, it was all a bit of a cloud. Um, um, you know, again, my knowledge might not be accurate, but... Um, my understanding was he didn't go happily and it, and it was a bit it, it was when the sort of more money men got involved with the business and, and wanted to transform it from his more maybe um, his kind of pure his ideal of, of, of what, what MG stood for I think um, and maybe he went away you know a bit a bit annoyed about how how it was turning out but the fact that the end you know the bgs and the b's and the btt's and the, the midget and the a's were so popular I'm, I'm sure he would have been really proud and really pleased by that because they were the you know the actual epitome of what he originally did, developed i think that sort of cheap affordable fun sports car basically i mean mm. i had one and they it's, they're great fun to drive mm. Yeah. yeah, you were you were saying before we started recording that you had a, an MGB and you live in Brighton, so it was uh, out, <laughs> open to the elements and the salty uh, air. Um, but yeah. uh, was was that was the family connection the motivation for buying that? I guess it must have been. Absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. It was through conversations with my granny, and um, you know, she actually helped me buy it, and it was she was really proud to see me own um a bgt um i've got photographs of me with her and the car and it, you know it was very much a um it was something between me and my gran obviously i was able to have this car which is great but it was very much a bonding experience for us we you know we really bonded over um the photographs and the history and, and the stories that she was able to tell me um and she 
and she put she was a journalist herself and she um, did a lot of research into the family um, into Cecil Kimber's history and put together two big photo albums um, which I've kind of she then gifted those to me um, quite a long time before she died when she when she said she was no longer able to travel to the to the meets to the to the car club events she handed the these two photo albums that she'd put together um, and basically just passed the baton and said you know this is this is up to you if you want to go to these events um, please take these with you and you know there's always lots of people who really want to see these pictures um, so I did that I spent a few years you know being serenaded by the MG car club which was nice mm-hmm. um, and you know it was great but then I, I honestly I did sort of realize that I'm not an enthusiast I'm not able to look after a car myself I I, I, I had this BGT and I, I wasn't able to put the love and, and effort and time into it that it required to um, keep it in good condition and like I said to you before it was it was just quite sad watching it deteriorate in the in the salty air mm. um, um, so yeah I sold it on to, to somebody who hopefully treated it better than I did well it all culminated in it being broken into didn't it on the side of the road <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> yeah that, that just goes to show how easy it was to get into when, when three three ten year old lads could get into it and use it as their plaything. <laughs> yeah. yeah so what do you do you have a feeling that Cecil Kimber was aware of the legacy that he might be leaving behind in the sense that there are artifacts like that photo album that are left in the family for you to to track the story back do you think he was aware of the of the impact he'd made on the on the motoring industry at the time I think he knew his place in the world yes because he was actually, um, I, I, um, I'm going to embarrass myself with actual details here, but he was the, at one stage, he was the president or the chairman of some design society within the Automobile Association. You might know the details on this. Yeah, he was president um, of the Automobile Division of the Institution of Mechanical Engineers. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. And that tells me that he was not just you know just a guy designing cars and not just running a company he had a real interest in the legacy of of engineering and design so whether he whether he knew about it on a personal level i'm i'm not sure but he definitely had a sense of what was going on in the world and you know i I mean because i did i studied design myself at university and that single fact is possibly the the one thing that has interested me as much as anything is is how he was interested in the design and he was you know leading this organization um you know it's it's absolutely fascinating um so how you know how how would you know at that young age middle age of your legacy i don't know um you'd be a bit i think maybe a bit presumptuous and a bit conceited to to imagine that you're going to go down in history but you never know who knows yeah, because of course yeah. he when he died 1945 was in his mid 50s so 
Mm. You know, he would have had plenty left to give. He'd left MG by then, of course. As you mentioned, he was a bit sort of disillusioned, I think, with how things had turned out when William Morris had taken control and he was Mm. really taking instructions from Morris's head office. And then, of course, Mm. there was the argument over the um, aircraft contract that he won for MG without the Mm. say-so of his higher-ups at Morris. And there was a big argument and he left in 1941. Um, they were, you know, that I just always have a feeling that had had he not been lost at such a relatively young age, there would have been so much more to give. Because um, mm. he went on to work for coach builders, didn't he? Charlesworth, and then a piston supplier, Specialoid. Um, so he was still very much in the motor industry, still connected to it, despite it being a time when really nothing was happening because, of course, they're all busy building planes for the war effort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, tell us about your career then, Joe. Um, what what have you in engineering and design gone on to do? Um, good question. I mean, lately I've sort of, let's say, taken the foot off the gas when it comes to my career. Um, I'm sort of work, working as a project manager in software at the moment in just a, in a retail company. Um, but... I did a, a product design degree. Like I said, I was never really—I was—I wasn't really a, an engineer. I wasn't smart enough to be an engineer at the time, um, and I wasn't really creative enough to be like a, what you might consider a proper designer. Um, so I found product design was a good blend of the two, um, and I ended up after university working for an access control manufacturer. So I worked um, for 15 years developing um, access control like keypads and swipe card readers and intercom systems and you know fancy electronic door handles and that kind of thing um, mm. so that's you know if, if I've got any kind of design or engineering legacy at all that's it and you can see things I've designed and developed um, on the streets you know I can point things out right on, on buildings and stuff so I've got that little bit of a legacy which is nice you know it, mm. it, it, it makes me feel good about what I've done but what, was, what was interesting what what it did get me um, was a was a, a an interview at um, Rover and a, a tour around um, uh, the Rover car plant at um, gosh what's it called in Birmingham what's at it Longbridge. called Longbridge thank you yeah um, so yeah I, I was they took me up there on a visit um, and I got to meet the very esteemed um, car designer who was working for them at the time. And um, they interviewed me properly for a junior design role. Um, but obviously I didn't get it because I had no background in, in car design and was nowhere near talented enough, unfortunately, to, <laughs> to, to get there. But it was an honor anyway to see, to see the design studio and mm. get a bit of an access behind the scenes access um, into what they were doing at the time with, with um, the, the cars that were going through before MG was sold, obviously, to the Chinese company. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a guided tour around Longbridge factory, which was which the car plant, which was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a bit of a dream come true, actually, to, to get, that, get that. So that's me, you know, using my family influence to, to 
possibly get a job <laughs> that never happened <laughs> a good day out though by the sounds of it it was, a, it was a great it was a great day out yeah yeah I, you know they put me in their company magazine for the month and you know it was nice it was nice it is yeah. amazing isn't it you know your experience of the rover days of longbridge there you can go through various different eras of course um your great grandfather would have seen the days of building in oxford up until 1929 when of course they moved mm. then to abingdon mm. and it's like a brand mm. that no matter what gets thrown at it what difficulties are in the world what conglomerate like bmc it gets swallowed up into for a time it always mm. seems and manages to survive it's incredible isn't it mm. yeah 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 and i got a um probably 20 years ago when i first moved to brighton not long after moving to brighton i um I had some a, a friend, a university friend, who grew up in Abingdon, and it was really funny because um, we were just talking about, you know, our lives. Um, and I mentioned she said she was from Abingdon. I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, my great grandfather was um, Cecil Kimber. He he set up factories there and did MGs and all that." She's like, "No way!" And I said, "Yeah." He, he, she and, and she said that his old house was now the pub. Um, and of course it is, you know, and I, when I came up to Silverstone, we stayed at Abingdon in a hotel in Abingdon and drove past the, the pub. His old house is now a local pub. That, that, was, our, that was our connection. It was, it was really funny. And, and that was one of the things that made me realise how much he meant to the local area of Abingdon, you know, because I hadn't really been aware of where he'd, you know, where he'd set up the factory and where he'd lived at that point, I think. And mm. um, yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. You talk to some of the people who were in Abingdon during the 50s and 60s, and we did that on the podcast when we talked to some of the ex-factory workers in earlier episodes, and you asked them, were you aware of jobs at MG when you were growing up? And basically the answer is, as you grew up, you knew that you either would work for one of the power stations on the railways or at the MG, as they called it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was an integral part of growing up in that area. That's where you worked. And people just walked out of school and straight through the gates of the factory at Abingdon and started working on the lines, usually as tea guys, um, you know, making the tea and then yeah. they would make their way up to various different roles. It was such a pivotal, along with the railways, such a pivotal part of life in Abingdon, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and I got, you know, I've, I've embarrassingly, I've not visit, spent time there. Um, but because I spent a couple of nights there before this, uh, over the Silverstone weekend this year, um, I was amazed to see that the, the hotel there, the Hilton, has got loads of um, MG memorabilia in the lobby mm -hmm. and then pictures all down the corridors to my hotel room. And, and again, it was, you know, it's another surprise that I'm getting this late in life to, yeah. to see how, how much it meant to that, that local area. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, and of course, you know, you look around the area in Abingdon, you've got a park there not far from Cemetery Road where the MG Car Club are based, which has the MG Octagon logo in brick <laughs> paving with all the flower beds around it. And of course, there's the last of the MGBs in the museum in town as well. It, it is everywhere still as you look around uh, the town. Mm -hmm. and, and the MG Car Club, one of the very few, in fact, probably the only club in the country that has a brown tourist sign directing you to it from the middle of town so it yeah it just shows right. you what what heritage there is 
in that town and yeah. uh, what a brilliant weekend we had in the sunshine at silverstone celebrating the centenary of your great-grandfather's founding of mg cars it was a brilliant day wasn't it it was yeah and it was really hot and i was amazed by how well you survived because <laughs> yes. you were in the sun from morning to evening <laughs> talking continuously um yeah it was uh, yeah it was quite quite incredible to watch i kept going away and sitting in the shade for a while and coming back and you were still at it um i any, loved it, it was, is there any time i've ever amazing. got sunburn on the bottom of my chin uh from the reflections <laughs> off the concrete that we were stood on in the arena there wow wow yeah yeah, yeah it was a great weekend and, and you know incredible to see really for the first time in a long time all of the different eras of mg in one place and you could see with mm. the uh, centenary timeline just how the market developed and evolved over that time as it had gone through various stages mm. of ownership and what a treat to see the rayworth um tribute car there um which is a morris cowley that the owner has very cleverly restored to look like one of those first six ray with bodied specials that really started cecil kimber's journey into mg amazing weren't they? Mm. yeah 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 it was it was great to see really really good to see yeah now you must be bowled yeah, over by all the enthusiasm that you meet out there as well from people you know <sighs> so, so they, some people have dedicated their lives to these cars haven't they Oh, Wayne, you've no idea. I, I, I continue to be amazed um, every time I go to an event. Um, you know, this time it was the life-size black and white um, cutouts of, of Cecil Kimber standing up in the various tents. Mm -hmm. um, he was in two different sizes. Did you notice that? You might not have seen this, but in the Heritage, in the Heritage tent, he was what looked like more like life-size, five and a half feet maybe. But then when I went into the, um, it was the, the car museum tent in the MG, the car club tent, he was about six foot two tall, <laughs> which was quite, quite bizarre. I, I've got my photo with him and he's taller than me. It's quite strange. <laughs> um, the time I, w I became most aware, and this is a very clear moment in my life, um, of what it means to people or what he means to people is um, I travelled, I went off travelling around the world in my early 20s. Um, and before I went, m Granny Jean set me up with um, some enthusiasts in New Zealand. And I was travelling to New Zealand as one of my, you know, my first port of call. And um, they picked me up from the airport and took me back to their house. Um, and I stayed with them for a few days, which was really great. And that, you know, it was, was organised, arranged by by Granny Jean. Um, lovely family, but they picked me up at the airport in an, in an MGA. Uh, my backpack wouldn't fit in the boot, which was quite amusing to begin with. <laughs> and then I went back to the family home, and they show, as they were showing me around the house, they stepped. We stepped into. Uh, it was in Auckland. They stepped. We stepped into the dining room. And on the wall of the dining room was a large portrait of my great grandfather on the wall, and I recognised it straight away. And they obviously, and they said, "You might recognise this gentleman." And I, I was like completely blown away. I mean, this is like pride of place, front and centre. There, you know, um, this picture of my great grandfather on their wall, um, wow. and that was it. That was when it hit me how how important he is to people. 
Um, and then they told me that they visit the East Cape of New Zealand on his birthday each year to be the first people in the world to celebrate his birthday. And they, it's one of their things. They drive out to the East Cape in their MGs and they, and they um, set up a, a breakfast on the beach and, and watch the sunrise. That story was really the, the, the nail that, that went in and, and, and con, I suppose confirmed it to me or, or made me realize what he meant to MG enthusiasts all over the world. And, and you know, I, although I knew about him and I knew about it, I read books and I'd been to events, I'd never really understood it that deeply until that moment. Um, and it was, it was just, yeah, my chin hit the floor. It was amazing. It was amazing. Mm, incredible. Yeah. And the other side of the world as well makes it even more poignant, doesn't it? You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, and I think it's, you know, it's not just about the appreciation for cars and the appreciation for a, a historical figure. The, the amazing legacy is also that here in the MG Car Club, we're really proud that there are tens of thousands of members in various branches and chapters of the MG Car Club around the world, and there is a tremendous community, a family, global family mm. of people that have come around and met each other and supported each other and you know yeah. there's a whole community built up around mg and cecil kimber and that that is an incredible legacy isn't it it is yeah it is and um, because i've got boxes now of, of stuff that have been handed down from my grandmother to my dad and to me and it's all these little um the the, the gifts that they had made that the various car clubs she visited in Australia, New Zealand, and USA, and I believe Canada as well. Um, whether, whatever she visited, they they made something. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, I don't know what you call it, like a, a medal or a, a something, uh, something to give to her and present her with. Yeah. And I've got boxes of them, and, and you know, because she visited numerous of these clubs over many years. There's a there's a large collection and, and yeah I've I've seen you know I've got this this collection of of all the various car clubs in around the world it's amazing it's a real it's a real insight into where these people are and and how much it means to them it's it's I'm very honoured and humbled I think just to just to know that just to know it yeah. Mm. So great that you've taken the baton on for celebrating his life, his legacy, the cars that he leaves behind. Um, what's the plans for the future then? Wh which of the two daughters are you training up to take the baton from you, or are they both interested? Um, both of them are quite interested. Who knows? We'll see. Um, my youngest is probably a bit more of the daredevil. So if either of them are going to get into cars, then it will be her. She's, she's got an engineering brain. She likes engineering. She likes it. Um, and she's very good at drawing. So, you know, we'll see. You never know. Um, but for me, what, what my plan is, I, I got reinvigorated um, by Silverstone Weekend. Mm. Um, you know, it's been almost 20 years since I was involved previously. Um and I've come to realize that I've got quite a lot of items that other people are really interested in seeing. Mm -hmm. um, so my plan now is to 
Um, well, I bought, I've already bought a scanner, a good quality scanner, and I'm going to um, scan photographs and I'm going to make them available to um, the, the MV Car Club, definitely, and possibly the Motor Museum, um, so that they, you know, don't get lost. Um, I know there's copies of a lot of them already in existence, uh, you know, around and about, but I know a lot of them aren't copied yet um, and aren't in archives somewhere. So I'm going to be doing that. Um, I'm also going to be, you know, taking some things at an appropriate time, probably to the car club so that they can sit in in more of an, a museum environment, um, uh, uh, you know, a place where people can come and see them if they want to rather than basically being stuck in, in either on my shelves or in my loft, basically. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's my plan. I don't have any great desire to be like, um, like my grandmother and sort of travel the world and, and visit the car clubs. I don't think, you know, the, the, the family connection isn't close enough, as in, you know, I, I didn't know him personally, so I can't talk to people about him. Yeah. Um, so, there's, you know, there's up. I suppose if Rob Constance of the Heritage um, Society, you know, he, he's been great. Um, he's like, you know, a, a friend now. No he's, doubt he'll he's invite everyone's me along friend, to, Rob. To, <laughs> yeah, he is. He is. Um, no doubt he'll invite me along to to events at some stage in the future, and I'll say yes, and I'll come along and and you know enjoy it like I do. You know, I, I just I do. I just really enjoy it. Well, if I'm commentating in the live arena, Joe, you're always welcome to come and chat to me for however long you can spare me. It's always great to see you out at events and, uh, you know, you're always welcome at the MG Car Club and any of the events that we're running. Um, the uh, it, It's nice just to have that link back to the past through your family connections and uh, just uh, have you around, make you feel welcome and uh, share our passion for your great-grandfather's memory and the cars that he left behind with you as well. So... It's great to have you there and great to have you on the MG Car Club podcast, of course. So, Joe McGavin, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Wayne. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's been an honour. Cheers. Subscribe to receive new episodes of the MG Car Club podcast at mgpodcast.uk.